You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to Portraits of Blue and Gray, the Internet's most delinquent history podcast. The last few months' episodes have looked at some of the most exciting events of the Civil War. Frankly, I think that they're the best that we've done. No, I'm just kidding. It's been a long, long time since we released an episode. And as much as I'd uh, love to recite a list of excuses, I'll spare you the trouble of having to skip forward to when the actual show starts, well, which is what I do when listening to podcasters who go overboard on the self-indulgent about the author part at the beginning of an episode. Uh, the bottom line is that I've been distracted and took way too long to do the research, writing, and recording for this show. But for those of you who are still subscribed, thank you for the patience, and I hope you like our episode on the New Mexico campaign. And we take a few detours into some, in my opinion, entertaining side topics. So I hope you enjoy the show. There's a quote that military historians are fond of. You've almost certainly heard it. Amateurs talk strategy, professionals talk logistics. It's usually attributed to American five-star general and first chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Omar Bradley. Of course, there's some dispute as to whether Bradley actually coined the phrase or if it was more of an an old saying that he kind of made his own. And uh, without getting too far uh, lost into the weeds, there's a, there's a similar quote that's attributed to Napoleon Bonaparte. The amateurs discuss tactics, the professionals discuss logistics. But that one is disputed too, so who knows. Uh, regardless though, the, the point stands. Strategy and, and tactics are, are fun and exciting to talk about. The kind of thing that naturally tends to interest most people. Logistics. You know, making sure the boys are where they need to be with all the stuff they need is less exciting. You can be genuinely impressed with how FedEx or UPS or the USPS can deliver tens of thousands of packages every day all over the world. And it is uh, legitimately impressive when when you think about it. But that doesn't mean that, you know, I'd be all that interested in, in listening to a lecture about about how they make that happen. With that said, though, it's, it's worth recognizing that people who are, who are logistics aces, you know, experts on coordinating hundreds or, or thousands of different factors um, to make, a, uh, make an entire system run like, like one smooth machine, um, 
you know, so that you don't even notice at first how many parts are, are, are moving behind the scenes. Uh, people who have that skill set are in high demand, and they tend to get paid very well for a reason. Because Omar Bradley and, and Napoleon and, and whoever else has, has said the quote we started with, they're right. Strategy is fun, and it's definitely important. But fine-tuned logistics can and often do decide the outcome. It's why, historically, the Russian army is, is mediocre on the road, but pretty lights out when they're playing at home. Now, the subject of today's episode, the New Mexico campaign, uh, perfectly juxtaposes the, um, the excitement of strategy uh, against the indispensable mundaneness of logistics. Confederate General Henry Hopkins Sibley had a, a great plan. It was bold. It served multiple objectives, and the risk-ward potential was astronomical. But he just kind of assumed away all the technical challenges that the ambitious plan required. And the Yankee defenders made him and his men pay a high price for focusing on high-profile strategy when the, the key to the campaign was logistics. New Mexico campaign is part of what is known as the Trans-Mississippi Theater. Trans-Mississippi, uh, which we haven't discussed much. Uh, as the name implies, the Trans-Mississippi is the action that took place west of the Mississippi River. Uh, so we're talking about areas like uh, Texas and Arkansas, Missouri, the Indian Territory, now known as Oklahoma, and of course, the New Mexico Territory that will be the focus of this episode. It's tempting to refer to, to these areas as the Western Theater, or the West, uh, but it's best to stick to Trans-Mississippi, because the Western Theater generally refers to fighting in states like Tennessee, Kentucky, and Mississippi, uh, which are actually east of the Mississippi River. The difference becomes increasingly important as the war goes on, and the Trans-Mississippi becomes more isolated. For listeners with uh, less familiarity with U.S. geography, the Mississippi River is, is the largest river in North America and runs north to south all the way through the U.S., starting small in northern Minnesota, then forming the eastern borders of Iowa, Missouri, Arkansas, and part of Louisiana before emptying into the Gulf of Mexico just south of New Orleans. Uh, the river runs through St. Louis, Memphis, and New Orleans, uh, all of which play important roles in the Civil War. The reason that that geography is important is that as the Mississippi flows south, it becomes a massive river, and as a result, it's a major natural obstacle. In the 19th century, or any time really, crossing the Mississippi is no small feat. Controlling the crossing points 
most famously for our purposes, Vicksburg, Mississippi, was a central aspect of the Union war strategy. When Grant captured Vicksburg, the Union had effectively cut the Confederacy in two, and it became exceedingly difficult for the rebels to transport troops and supplies from states west of the river to states east of the river, and vice versa. As a result, after July 1863, the Trans-Mississippi is basically isolated from, from the rest of the war and becomes uh, much more of a guerrilla affair. The New Mexico campaign, though, takes place in 1862. So control of the Mississippi is still in play, and Western assets controlled by the Confederacy have more strategic potential to affect the fighting in the East. Now, the Confederacy had a massive landmass to defend with limited manpower. So Richmond needed to deploy its troops wisely. That meant that, in general, the Trans-Mississippi Department received less attention than the East. With that said, though, rebel military leaders early in the war saw Union Western territories as a potential vulnerable point, forcing Washington to allocate resources defending uh, Western states and territories diverted those same resources away from the Confederacy's more populated, um, more economically productive areas in the East. All that is to say that there was some important, occasionally riveting action in the Trans-Mississippi, but the numbers involved are usually uh, considerably smaller than in the East, and it was often a, a different kind of fighting with a greater emphasis on mobility in, in light of the geographically large but sparsely populated, for the most part, um, areas that we're talking about. Uh, the Trans-Mississippi's relative isolation caused some problems for the Confederacy. Being so far away from Richmond, local officials had to exercise greater autonomy. Transportation and communication systems were not nearly as well developed west of the Mississippi. Um, that and the distance itself made communications with Richmond difficult. The Confederate war effort would have benefited from better coordination between um, military operations east and west of the river, uh, but they were unable to make that kind of coordination happen, and Jefferson Davis doesn't seem to have viewed it as much of a priority. The Trans-Mississippi states and territories' autonomy included among other things, taking responsibility for their own defense from the Yankees, but also from Indian war bands. While there were plenty of Texans, Arkansans, and Louisianans who fought east of the Mississippi, uh, John Bell Hood, Patrick Claiborne, and P.G.T. Beauregard come to mind, but uh, rank-and-file soldiers as well, uh, there was a reluctance for political leaders in those states to dispatch men east when they knew the Confederate Army couldn't effectively defend their home territories. And of course, the soldiers themselves felt the same way, with some only willing to take up arms to defend their home states. As the war progressed, this problem increased. Westerners fighting in the Army of Tennessee or the Army of Northern Virginia would get news from back home and decide their efforts would be better spent defending their own farms and families, than defending Richmond or Atlanta. 
an interesting and lesser-discussed facet of the Trans-Mississippi Theater, and a facet I hope to do an, uh, an episode on in the future, is the fighting in Indian Territory. Uh, the population of the Indian Territory was composed largely of Indian tribes, um, most of whom had once resided in the southeastern states, but had been uh, compelled by Congress to relocate in the 1830s. Over notable objectors, like uh, political leaders Henry Clay and Davy Crockett, a member of Congress at the time, Christian groups, and of course, the tribes themselves. When the war broke out, the Indian population sided mostly, but not exclusively, with the Confederacy. Multiple tribes, including the Cherokee, Seminole, and Comanche, entered into formal alliances with the Confederacy and in some cases opted to allow their land to be considered Confederate territory. Uh, somewhere around seven or 8,000 Indian soldiers from, uh, from Indian territory uh, fought in the Confederate Army. Um, a lesser number, uh, maybe a third to a half of that, fought for the Union, forming up into the Indian Home Guard. American Indian soldiers fought several battles in Indian Territory, and also saw significant action in other trans-Mississippi fighting. And there was also a great deal of raiding along the lines of uh, what was seen in nearby Missouri. Uh, we'll have to go into this in, in greater detail in the future, because it's going to make a really good show topic. Uh, for now, we'll move on to the Union objectives in the trans-Mississippi theater. Now, Lincoln's initial priority in the Trans-Mississippi was to secure control of St. Louis and Missouri in general. St. Louis was and is a major city, and with its uh, nickname Gateway to the West, was a key communication and transportation hub. St. Louis also had a fairly high pro-Union population, highlighted by German Catholic immigrants. The rebels had some initial tactical success at Wilson's Creek, also called Oak Hills. The National Park Service calls Wilson's Creek the second major battle of the war and first in the Trans-Mississippi. It was also where General Nathaniel Lyon became the first Civil War Union general to die in combat. By the end of 1861, Union general and famed explorer John C. Fremont, who had overall command of the, the Federal Department of the West, uh, and assumed field command after Lyons' death um, and the troops' uh, loss of confidence in General Franz Siegel, uh, Fremont was able to use a numerically superior force to maneuver Confederate, uh, Confederate General Sterling Price out of Missouri. And from that point forward, Missouri descends into the, the nasty uh, guerrilla fighting that we touched on um, during our brief uh, digression into the career of uh, Jesse James, with Union forces occupying and mostly controlling the state. The other principal Union objectives in the Trans-Mississippi involved cutting off Confederate access to Western resources. The Confederate Western states were a potential source of, of not just manpower, but significant agricultural resources. Big rice and sugar crops could be used to help support the larger eastern armies if they could be transported east, and the southwest had a huge number of draft animals. Uh, according to, to U.S. Army historian uh, Jeffrey Prushankin, in his 2015 long essay on the Trans-Mississippi, 
Uh, the Confederate States west of the Mississippi had 800,000 oxen, 300,000 mules, and, and just under a million horses, uh, all of which were critical to the Confederate war effort. And, of course, there was King Cotton. The cotton produced in the southwestern states was a high-demand resource uh, that could be exchanged for finished goods from overseas. Of course, that trade relied on a means of getting the cotton to market, which the naval blockade was intended to prevent. The rebels had one potential alternative to running the blockade, and that alternative also relied on the Trans-Mississippi. Texas was the only Confederate state that shared a land border with a foreign country. Ambitious Southerners could transport cotton to Mexico by land, uh, via Texas, then trade the cotton for munitions, medical supplies, or any other useful European products that could be brought into Mexican ports. To prevent that from happening, the Northern War Department sought to establish a presence in Texas particularly along the Mexican border. Stopping unauthorized border crossing was a priority, as was impeding the rebels' use of Mexico to bypass the blockade. We'll talk about that a little more later. California was another potentially huge, though probably less realistic, resource for the Union and also potentially for the Confederacy. So keeping rebels out of California was another Union objective in the Trans-Mississippi. The naval blockade would be much, much more difficult if the Confederates secured reliable access to California's Pacific ports. And California held a resource more valuable and even easier to barter with than cotton. Of course, we're talking about gold. The last thing the Lincoln administration wanted to do was to allow the Confederacy to improve its already tenuous financial position by getting its hands on California gold. Now, despite a few setbacks, the Union was, was mostly successful in its trans-Mississippi objectives. Missouri saw some nasty fighting but stayed in Union hands. Trade across the Texas-Mexico border was, was never fully closed down, uh, and the Union Army did struggle to, to control territory in Texas, but, but Union naval dominance on the Mississippi River, um, cemented with the capture of Vicksburg, um, made large-scale transport of Confederate resources from Mexico into the Eastern Theater uh, impractical. And as for California, there was some skirmishing there, but the rebels never seriously contended for the Golden State. In fact, modern historians generally consider the fighting in, in Arizona and New Mexico the uh, westernmost significant action of the war, uh, excluding naval action. And it is to New Mexico that we shall now turn our attention. New Mexico today, the land of enchantment, famous for its spectacular scenery and booming rattlesnake population, is the fifth largest state geographically and it has the fifth lowest population density. It's very large and has a lot of geographic diversity, and the Civil War-era New Mexico Territory was even larger, encompassing modern-day Arizona and a portion of Nevada, up to the area around Las Vegas, along with modern-day New Mexico. A lot of the story that we're going to discuss occurs in the southern region that the Confederates claimed and were calling Arizona. 
uh, you sometimes see it called Confederate Arizona. At the outbreak of the war, the New Mexico Territory, which formally became a United States territory in 1850, was governed from the modern-day capital of Santa Fe, which dates its founding all the way back to 1610, when, when it was formed as part of San Felipe del Nuevo Mexico, or Mexico, in what was uh, at the time called New Spain. Nuevo Mexico joined the newly independent Mexican nation in 1821, then became a U.S. holding in 1848 as part of the war spoils following the Mexican-American War. The residents became American citizens, if they wanted to, and New Mexico became an official U.S. territory by an act of Congress two years later. Southern congressmen unsuccessfully tried to secure approval uh, for a break-off Arizona territory in the years leading up to the war. The contemplated New Mexico-Arizona border would have run east to west, uh, with New Mexico to the north and Arizona to the south, rather than the north-to-south running border uh, that we think of now. Uh, But Congress wouldn't go for it because the region was too sparsely populated and because of correct suspicions that southern politicians wanted to settle Arizona as a potential new slave state. An 1860 convention in Tucson declared itself a provisional government of a new Arizona territory, uh, with Santa Fe's approval, but that didn't accomplish their goal either. Due in large part to Confederate claims uh, in the Arizona Territory, the U.S. Congress would officially organize Arizona as a U.S. territory in February 1863, using the north-to-south running border uh, that we're familiar with today. The Confederates anticipated that the New Mexico population uh, was going to support the Confederacy and welcome a Confederate military campaign. The primary route for accessing New Mexico from the eastern states, uh, the Santa Fe Trail, began in Missouri and was more often traversed by Southerners. The two most prominent political figures in New Mexico both had ties to the South. Miguel Otero, a New Mexico native who served as the territory's non-voting delegate to the House of Representatives, um, he had married into a, a South Carolina family, and he generally sided with the southern states on controversial political questions. And New Mexico's territorial governor when the Civil War began was Abraham Rencher, a North Carolinian who had been, during his long political career, a Jacksonian Democrat, a Whig, and then a Democrat again. Rencher was a southerner, and he officially supported slavery in New Mexico in the years leading up to the war. When the war began, though, Rencher remained solidly pro-Union, and he issued an order forming up New Mexico militia uh, to support the Union war effort when hostilities actually began. Nonetheless, uh, Lincoln had doubts about Rencher and replaced him within a few months with Henry Connolly, uh, who held the post as New Mexico's territorial governor for the duration of the Civil War. Notwithstanding Confederate visions of being welcomed as liberators, uh, the reality was that much of the New Mexico Territory's population was apathetic about the coming Civil War. Those who chose sides were probably uh, majority pro-Union, but a smaller um, 
though not insignificant group in the southern region, um, did in fact uh, come out in favor of the South. And following conventions in Mesilla and Tucson, the Arizona Territory seceded and petitioned for admission into the newly minted Confederate states. When the Confederates heard about um, Arizona's uh, secession, well, they were all for it. After all, potential uh, foothold in the Southwest providing access to California and the Pacific Ocean could be a huge asset. Southern New Mexico's more pro-Confederate mood was mostly due to uh, former Southerners who had relocated to Mexico um, and disproportionately uh, settled in the territory's uh, southern region. That uh, general sentiment was uh, catalyzed by Congress um, when they cut off the the U.S. postal route that uh, ran into southern New Mexico, um, severing the, the most reliable means of communication with the east. The, the move was interpreted as uh, an abandonment, uh, a sign that Washington intended to let the settlers um, you know, basically fend for themselves against the hostile natives in the area. And it contributed to the, the pro-Confederate sympathies in uh, southern New Mexico. And in what was um, either confirmation or self-fulfilling prophecy, Washington started withdrawing federal regulars from southern New Mexico when the war started, leading the locals to form up militia units uh, to defend the territory in the Union Army's absence, which also led to an increase in raids by Apache and Navajo warriors. Uh, The combination of the increased raids, uh, the lost postal route, and Arizona's declaring for the Confederacy caused a big chunk of the pro-Union families in southern New Mexico Uh, to pack up and leave the area for northern New Mexico, uh, so that Confederate Arizona became increasingly pro-Southern. The actual number of New Mexico Territory residents who fought uh, in the Civil War isn't really clear, but there there were thousands who served on on both sides, joining primarily as uh, New Mexico volunteer regiments for the Union and Arizona volunteer regiments for the Confederates. The action in New Mexico started early, with the First Battle of Mesilla in July 1861. A battalion of Texans under Colonel John Baylor moved into the territory with the approval of Confederate General Earl Van Dorn, who commanded the Department of Texas. Baylor was joined by a group of Confederate Arizonans, and they started the campaign by moving against Fort Fillmore and the small contingent of Union regulars still in occupation. A Confederate nighttime operation uh, that evening resulted in the capture of a large portion of the Union garrison's horses. Uh, We don't know for sure what was going through the the mind of the Union commander, Major Isaac Lind. But he ultimately decided that his position at Fort Fillmore was not tenable. Out on the frontier, without mounts for most of his men, uh, Lind opted to give up the fort with little resistance and withdraw north for Fort Stanton. So they had been in a fairly well-supplied fort out, out in the desert, um, and after uh, the rebels stole most of their horses, Lynn ordered his men to go for a march in the New Mexico desert in July. The gambit didn't pay off. Lynn's Federals marched for a day, but it was July, and they were marching in the desert, so it was a brutal march. 
Uh, more than a few of the men were picked up by the pursuing rebels, exhausted and dehydrated. And it didn't help things that a, a much larger percentage of the Union troops uh, than you would like uh, when preparing for the withdrawal from the fort and the upcoming desert march, they apparently decided that they'd be better off filling their canteens with whiskey than water. So after a day of marching, Lind realized that walking to Fort Stanton wasn't going to happen. Uh, he had to choose between dying in the desert or surrendering, and he opted for the latter. Uh, he and his hundred or so remaining soldiers laid down arms at uh, St. Augustine Springs, and were promptly paroled. The Union stores at Fort Fillmore left Baylor's Texans much better equipped with upgraded Springfield rifles uh, than when they had started their foray into New Mexico. Following the victory, Colonel Baylor, an ambitious man, proclaimed the Confederate Territory of Arizona, located in what is today southern New Mexico. On paper, Confederate Arizona included all of New Mexico territory below the 34 degrees latitude line, uh, which is a, a little less than half of modern Arizona and New Mexico. Practically speaking, the Confederates controlled Tucson and Mesilla and their outskirts. This new territory under Confederate control needed a governor, and Colonel Baylor knew just the man for the job. So he appointed himself. Uh, a move subsequently ratified by Jefferson Davis when he officially proclaimed the Confederate Territory of Arizona in February 1862. Uh, again, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but this uh, John Baylor uh, fella, uh, he had quite the career. Um, he had been an Indian agent before the war, and he founded a newspaper called The White Man. He took out the newspaper competition by killing the editor of a competitive paper. Um, Baylor's gig as, as military governor of Arizona, though good on the old resume, didn't last long since Jefferson Davis demoted him and stripped him of his officer's commission for issuing an order to, um, to literally exterminate the Apache Indians. But that didn't stop John Baylor from serving in the Confederate Congress in Richmond. And after the war, he killed another guy, um, though he was not convicted at the trial. Uh, now, if you're wondering, uh, Baylor University is not named for Colonel John Baylor. Uh, it is named for his uncle, Robert Emmett Bledsoe Baylor, who was a Baptist minister and a Texas Supreme Court justice. Now, as for um, Union Major Isaac Lind, um, who had been in command of Fort Fillmore, uh, a few months later, in November 1861, President Lincoln threw him out of the Army for abandoning Fort Fillmore and surrendering to the rebels. Now, Lincoln was patient with many officers, especially early in the war before he started to, to figure things out for himself militarily. But surrendering a fort and your command without much of a fight was the precise opposite uh, of what Lincoln was looking for in officers. Now, that brings us more or less to where the events uh, usually called the New Mexico Campaign uh, when they begin. Before we go there, though, I, I want to touch on uh, Mexico during the U.S. Civil War. Now, uh, I'm aware that New Mexico and Mexico are different, but even so, I'm going to 
I'm going to kind of shoehorn a brief background of, of Mexico during the U.S. Civil War era anyway. Um, it admittedly doesn't, you know, doesn't quite fit as well as I would like, but it's a topic that I thought would be, um, you know, would be fun to touch on, and, and this might be the, the closest thing to relevant that uh, we're going to get. And, and also, we, we, um, we did recently talk about Canada, you know, colloquially known as, as North Vermont. So it's, it's only fair, right? Okay, most historians uh, of the U.S. Civil War mention Mexico in the context of the uh, Mexican-American War, which uh, wrapped up over a dozen years before Fort Sumter. Winfield Scott and Zachary Taylor defeated Santa Ana, then um, Manifest Destiny happens, and the U.S. Uh, gets a bunch more territory. People who thought they were Mexicans find out that they're actually gringos, and the new territory, uh, specifically the question of whether it would have slavery, uh, contributes to the regional tensions that culminate in the American states making war against one another. Now, depending on your source, Mexico next comes up when we learn that President Lincoln is concerned about French Emperor Napoleon III's intentions in Mexico. That, of course, raises the question of what in the world the French are doing in Mexico in the 1860s. Well, the way that played out was that Santa Ana had to resign in 1855. And after a, a brief provisional government, Mexico adopted a new constitution in 1857. General Juan Alvarez initially took the reins of state as president, but the new government wasn't able to, to really establish a firm footing. A civil war known as the Reform War, or War of the Reform, uh, broke out soon after, with Benito Juarez liberals on one side, uh, the side that officially held power at the start, and conservatives commanded by the um, lesser-known, uh, at least to me, Felix Zuluago on the other. Uh, for a period about two years, the two rival sides uh, each claimed to be the legitimate government of Mexico. Now, the conservative side's power base was in Mexico City, and Juarez's liberals were headquartered in Veracruz. It looked like the, the conservatives were going to um, prove victorious in the early fighting, but the liberals turned things around in 1860, helped by military aid from the United States. The conservatives had a brief um, resurgence after the devastating loss of Mexico City on New Year's Day, 1861, but Juarez's liberals ultimately claimed victory in the Reform War. Now, the Reform War, like most civil wars, resulted in instability and tremendous debt. Juarez realized that the Mexican state couldn't meet its obligations, and therefore he announced that the government would cease paying interest on foreign debts. Now, the big problem with that move was that financial interests tend to have a lot of influence over governments. Not in the U.S., of course, but, you know, in other countries. So in response to Juarez's halt on interest payments... Three European powers, France, Great Britain, and Spain, took action to protect their pecuniary interests. A combined force landed at Veracruz in the latter part of 1861. Now, for perspective, this is occurring between First Manassas and when the pace of the U.S. Civil War uh, picked up in the Eastern Theater. Under different circumstances, there might have, have been more 
um, you know, United States resistance to the European nations moving a military force into Mexico uh, due to the uh, Monroe Doctrine. But Washington was pretty well occupied at the time. So before long, um, after the landing at Veracruz, the British and Spanish figured out that the French were not just in it for the money. French Emperor Napoleon III had designs on turning Mexico into a French vassal state, gaining access to Mexico's mineral wealth and establishing a, a stronger counterbalance to growing American power in the Western Hemisphere. As we all know, Great Britain in the 19th century was absolutely positively opposed to imperialism. So Britain and Spain told France that they wanted nothing to do with that dirty business, and they each negotiated a debt repayment agreement with Mexican authorities and went home. At the same time, the French army invaded the Mexican interior, anointing Austrian Habsburg Archduke Maximilian as the new emperor of the Second Mexican Empire which would be organized as a constitutional monarchy. Now, a major factor complicating Mexican resistance to to French encroachment on on Mexican sovereignty was that there were still a lot of people in Mexico, probably a minority, but a significant one, who were not happy with the outcome of the Reform War and felt no particular loyalty toward the Juarez government. Juarez's reforms had included restricting the power of the Catholic Church and the Mexican army and nationalizing lands that had previously been owned by the church. So much of the institutional church in Mexico and the army uh, sided with the French and backed Maximilian, along with substantial numbers of Mexican Indians. In accounts of the fighting, the French-Mexican conservatives and their allies are usually called the imperialists, and the side representing the existing Mexican government, led by Benito Juarez, uh, is usually called the Republicans. After initially stumbling out of the gate, including an, an early Republican victory at the Battle of Puebla that was the inspiration for the Cinco de Mayo holiday, the pro-French imperialists won a string of victories uh, throughout 1863 and 1864, and secured control of much of the center of the country, including Mexico City. The remaining Republican power centers were in the north, near the U.S. border, uh, where Juarez continued to run a liberal government, and the stronghold states in the south, where General Porfirio Diaz was at the helm. Imperialist successes continued through the fall of 1864 and into the start of 1865, with the fall of Acapulco, uh, which had been Juarez's capital, and then a major fort in Oaxaca, not sure about the pronunciation, uh, which had been commanded by Porfirio Diaz. The liberal side uh, that had been Mexico's legitimate government had suffered loss after loss and was mostly reduced to guerrilla fighters by this point. Then a turning point came in April 1865 with the end of the U.S. Civil War. Porfirio Diaz in particular recognized that Appomattox and the more direct U.S. opposition to French involvement in Mexico that would inevitably follow was a potential game changer. Diaz wrote, quote, The United States will never permit him, meaning Maximilian, to consolidate his power, and his sacrifices and victories will have counted for nothing, end quote. Even with his army in its battered condition, 
Diaz sent a prophetic message to Maximilian, suggesting that the Habsburg would-be emperor should leave Mexico voluntarily while he still could. Now, from the get-go, the Lincoln administration hadn't been happy with the French meddling in Mexico. With, you know, like we said, the Monroe Doctrine and everything. But Washington had been occupied fighting the Confederates, so the objection to that point had mostly been pro forma. Instead, Secretary of State William Seward focused his efforts um, relating to the situation in Mexico on discouraging French assistance to the Confederacy. Seward's diplomacy was mostly successful, and neither France nor Mexico extended formal diplomatic recognition to the Confederacy, though Napoleon III gave it serious consideration. The limited assistance that the Confederates received came in the form of access to Mexican ports, specifically a small Atlantic port in northern Mexico called Baghdad. The Union blockade cut off European imports to uh, Confederate ports, but cargo headed to the southern states could be unloaded in open ports in Mexico and then brought into Texas. The Mexican government wasn't uh, pro-Confederate, but they desperately needed the revenue from the tariffs, so they didn't object. The French and the imperialists were more friendly to the South, but uh, they weren't in a position to offer any direct assistance. So eventually, the Union Army limited Confederate imports through Mexico by occupying uh, crossing points along the Rio Grande. Though the Confederates were still able to, to sneak some goods across by uh, altering the locations uh, where they went across the river. Okay, returning to spring 1865, Washington is now able uh, to care more about the situation in Mexico. And Secretary of State Seward, now acting on behalf of the uh, Johnson administration, uh, he starts to make clear that the American opposition to France's imperialist designs um, in Mexico might not be limited to diplomatic cables for much longer. Uh, Ulysses Grant was one of the most outspoken opponents of French involvement in Mexico, viewing it as uh, aggression upon the United States itself. Grant, who of course was the highest-ranking American soldier, wrote to President Andrew Johnson in June 1865, quote, I regard the act of attempting to establish a monarchical government on this continent, in Mexico, by foreign armies, as an act of hostility against the government of the United States. If allowed to go on until such a government is established, I see nothing before us but a long, expensive, and bloody war, end quote. Uh, Grant's view was that if a European imperialist government became the legitimate sovereign uh, government of Mexico, a war between that government and the U.S. would have to follow. So the smart move strategically was to go ahead and send the army now uh, while it was still mobilized um, and while the imperial presence in Mexico was uh, still embryonic, and um, while there were still Mexican Republican allies to help with the fight. Grant even sent uh, General Philip Sheridan and 50,000 bluecoats to Texas in 1865. The official purpose of the expedition was to bring an end to the remaining Confederates still fighting in Texas. But Grant made it clear to Sheridan 
uh, that he should be prepared to lead his men across the Rio Grande to fight the French army. And Sheridan was practically chomping at the bit for the opportunity. And wouldn't you know it, Napoleon III starts gradually drawing down French troops in Mexico. Now, as a patriotic American, I like to think that Napoleon, this version of Napoleon, was shaking in his boots over the prospect of a veteran army under Sheridan, or better yet, under William Tecumseh Sherman, uh, crossing the Rio Grande and methodically destroying the entire French military presence in Mexico. With that in mind, he started removing men before that nightmare scenario became a reality. However, there's a strong likelihood that the French uh, gradual withdrawal uh, had been in the cards anyway, since uh, France's presence in the Western Hemisphere was delivering an absolute beating to the French treasury. And major financial problems caused by the French government's uh, military adventures in the Western Hemisphere had contributed to beheadings of numerous French aristocrats within living memory. Uh, There was also the looming prospect that the French army would soon need all the strength it could muster for a serious scrap against a formidable foe in Europe, the German states unifying under the Prussian king Wilhelm I and his brilliant counselor Otto von Bismarck. So by early 1867, the French army called it a day in Mexico, waving goodbye to Maximilian and his imperialist forces um, and leaving them to fend for themselves. It didn't fare well. Maximilian's government collapsed, and the Habsburg Archduke and Emperor of Mexico, uh, without his French allies, was imprisoned and then executed that summer. He didn't have time to flee the country with billions of dollars. Benito Juarez resumed his position as Mexican head of state. And after his death in 1872, Porfirio Diaz took the mantle ruling Mexico as essentially a military dictator, serving seven presidential terms that stretched for over 30 years. The, uh, the Diaz era saw political stability and some economic advances in Mexico, but there was also rampant corruption and nothing resembling a uh, real uh, Republican representative government. Um, That's probably better than civil war or domination by imperial France, but, you know, it's not perfect. Speaking of imperial France, the French designs in Mexico had ended, not to be continued. The Franco-Prussian War started in July 1870. Uh, By January 1871, the French were defeated, and Napoleon III was deposed and in German custody and Kaiser Wilhelm I's unified German Empire had established itself as the dominant power on the European continent. Okay, I hope that was a a fun look at our uh, greater setting for this episode and kind of a a general summary uh, on the military and political events taking place in the far western states um, and Mexico in the Civil War era. And now we can focus our sights and look more closely at the New Mexico campaign itself. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Where we left off in New Mexico, Colonel and soon-to-be Governor John Baylor had just earned a victory at the First Battle of Mesilla, which had led to the declaration of the Confederate Territory of Arizona in fall of 1861. Now, at about the same time, Confederate Brigadier General Henry Hopkins Sibley also set his sights on New Mexico, sensing an opportunity to build on the earlier success. Sibley requested and received authorization from Jefferson Davis to recruit three regiments of uh, Texas volunteers. The regiments would be mounted rifles, essentially infantrymen who ride. Sibley's pitch was that he believed, uh, with a force of a few thousand men and horses, he could invade and wrest control of the New Mexico Territory from Union hands. Sibley's strategic objective was first to seize uh, effective control of the vast New Mexico and Utah territories. Um, And using that as a jumping-off point, he could threaten Nevada and Colorado, along with the biggest potential prize, access to California and one or more of its ports, which would make the Union blockade next to impossible um, to enforce for the simple reason that the Union Navy lacked the resources to patrol both coasts. The Confederates would be able to move cotton again and have a reliable location for importing weapons and finished goods. Now, there was also the hope that acquiring access to Western silver and gold would help finance the Southern War effort and improve the new Confederate government's creditworthiness. Between the precious metals and the impact of reopening the cotton trade, Sibley's operation had the potential for enormous financial benefits for the South. And of course, any California gold that ends up in the Confederate hands isn't in federal hands. Now, in the long term, and General Sibley was, well, he was thinking long term, a well-established Confederate presence in the Western territories would significantly increase the Confederacy's uh, geographic size and allow for post-war settlement. The Confederacy could expand westward, just like the Union. Now, capturing California was uh, amazingly ambitious, and the entire state was almost certainly out of reach. But Sibley believed that Southern California in particular had Confederate sympathies, and he wasn't really uh, planning on taking control of of all of Southern California uh, with his relatively small force. He was hoping that a Confederate military presence would embolden the local citizens to basically secede from the state or start their own government. Um, This wasn't uh, completely outside the realm of possibility. There were organized groups of Californians vocally in support of the Confederacy, and California officials viewed them as um, enough of a threat that they dispatched soldiers to break up secessionist groups um, when they attempted to gather publicly. Sibley was envisioning a new Confederate state in Southern California, formed by lopping off part of the existing Union state 
um, similar to how Confederate Arizona had formed from the bottom half of New Mexico. With that said, though, Sibley didn't need the Southern California residents to actually join the Confederacy for his plan to bear fruit. They just had to leave the Union and cooperate with the rebels. Now, while he was at it, Sibley figured he might also be able to break off some territory from northern Mexico, too. As we discussed, Mexico's political situation was unstable, so maybe the locals would be interested in joining the the newly minted Confederate States of America. You never know. Another and less direct objective was to divert Union strength away from the east. A lot of Federal Army manpower um, that had been out west was called back east when the war got going. Sibley wanted to force Washington to choose between losing far western land or defending its expansive territories at the expense of Union strength east of the Mississippi. Every federal soldier defending New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, or California wasn't threatening the Confederacy's eastern population, manufacturing, and agricultural centers. Now, General Sibley knew going in that supplying his small army was going to be a major logistical challenge. They'd be traversing a sparsely populated but geographically large area. For the most part, the landscape would be unforgiving. So they had to carry what they needed with them, including drinking water. But you can only carry so much when you're trying to cover a lot of ground quickly. And what Sibley was banking on, and this is important, was that the rebels would be able to resupply along the way by capturing lightly manned Union garrisons in New Mexico. The War Department's substantial reduction in manpower allocated to New Mexico should make the forts easy to capture, but they still held large stashes of food and supplies, which Sibley intended to appropriate. And that was the plan for the campaign. We don't really need to worry about our logistical situation because we'll just take the Union stuff. Sibley would be leading what he named the Army of New Mexico. At its peak, he'd be in command of a brigade of about 3,700 men, predominantly composed of the Texas Mounted Infantry, which numbered around 2,500, and some Arizonan volunteers. The uh, Mounted Rifles were not, in all fairness, appropriately named, uh, because uh, a bunch of them were armed with shotguns, rifles being in short supply. They did, though, have with them a few batteries of mountain howitzers, light smoothbore artillery designed for versatility and ease of transport. And just as importantly, the Texans were pretty well accustomed to the frontier environment. Now, after gathering in San Antonio, the Army of New Mexico made its initial move to Fort Bliss in El Paso in October 1861 to await the arrival of a few more units for the expedition into New Mexico. Then they collected a few more recruits in Mesilla and Tucson and prepared for the push north. The plan was to first capture Fort Craig, which in modern terms is about 40 miles north of the town of Truth or Consequences. They were about halfway between Las Cruces and Albuquerque in the central part of the state. Then they'd march north toward Albuquerque and then southwest for the big prize of Fort Union, which is in northeastern New Mexico. Now, General Henry Hopkins Sibley was a Louisiana-born, Missouri-raised graduate of West Point, class of 1838. And the Sibley family had uh, its original um, North American roots in Massachusetts. And General Sibley's similarly named cousin, 
Henry Hastings Sibley, was a Union general who, before the war, represented Minnesota and then Wisconsin in the U.S. House and also served as governor of Minnesota. Henry Hopkins Sibley, the Confederate general uh, organizing the New Mexico campaign, uh, he was a veteran of the wars with Mexico and the Seminole Wars in Florida. And in an interesting bit of trivia, he was the inventor of the teepee-inspired Sibley tent used by the Union Army during the Civil War. When the war started, Sibley resigned from the Union Army as a major and received command of a brigade of Texans as a Confederate brigadier general. During uh, his tenure as a U.S. Army officer in the years leading up to the war, um, Sibley had been stationed in New Mexico. So uh, going into the campaign, he had a fairly good understanding of the challenges that the terrain would present. The rebel army of New Mexico's principal opposition would be the Union garrison based at Fort Craig under Colonel Edward Canby, a West Point graduate, class of 1839, one year after Sibley, uh, originally from Kentucky. Canby had overall military command of the Federal Department of New Mexico. Following his, um, his time in New Mexico, Canby would go on to have a distinguished and eventful military career, eventually reaching the rank of Major General. Among other things, Canby was tasked with reigning in the chaos in New York City after the draft riots, with fighting guerrillas in Mississippi, capturing Mobile, Alabama, and accepting the surrenders of Generals Kirby Smith and Richard Taylor. After the war, Canby earned the unlucky distinction of being the only U.S. Army general killed in the line of duty during the Indian Wars. In 1873, during peace talks with the Modoc tribe, uh, which Canby had uh, attended unarmed as a show of good faith, he was murdered by Modoc chief Captain Jack after um, indicating that he, uh, meaning Canby, um, lacked the authority to grant the Modoc's request for the return of land. Returning to 1862, though, uh, Canby had around 5,000 men in New Mexico, but they were spread out. His command consisted of five regiments of volunteers from New Mexico and some militia, some Colorado volunteers, and a dozen or so companies of U.S. infantry regulars and about half as many uh, from the U.S. cavalry. Additional volunteers arriving from Colorado would supplement Canby's strength over the course of the coming weeks. Now, Canby was a, an able officer, and he had a high degree of confidence in his regulars. He did, though have very little confidence in the volunteers and militia, which resulted in Canby resisting as much as he could Washington's calls for the regulars to return east. Now, the other noteworthy Union presence in New Mexico was Fort Union's garrison under Colonel Gabriel Paul. Uh, Colonel Paul commanded a regiment plus one company of Colorado Volunteer Infantry and one New Mexico company a battalion of U.S. regular infantry, a smattering of U.S. cavalry regulars, and a couple artillery batteries. The Army of New Mexico began its campaign by marching north along the Rio Grande, heading toward Albuquerque, with its sights set first on Fort Craig, then Fort Union. Sibley divided his force into a series of smaller detachments for the journey, hoping that moving separately would help alleviate the inevitable water shortages. Sibley's plan uh, to capture uh, Fort Craig was first to circle around the fort, which rested just west of the river, 
to prevent the Union garrison from sending messages or receiving any kind of support from Santa Fe. To that end, he led his men along the Rio Grande east of Fort Craig, planning to then cross west at Valverde Ford, about five miles north of the fort. Colonel Canby caught word of the rebel movement and on February 20th marched out to confront Sibley with a detachment of about 2,300 men, a little over half of whom were the regulars that he expected to be reliable. Fort Craig's defenders caught up to the Confederates the next day at Valverde Ford, where they positioned to prevent the river crossing. When portions of the opposing forces came in contact, Canby responded by setting up his artillery to target the rebels from across the river. Um, So the Federals are on the west bank and the rebels are on the east. And that was followed by a Union cavalry charge across the ford that knocked Sibley's Confederates off guard and forced a withdrawal away from the river. Union men then crossed to the east side of the Rio Grande in pursuit of the Confederates and moved to attack the rebels at their new position. Rebel cavalry counterattacks were unsuccessful, sternly repulsed by Union artillery and rifle fire. Can be prepared for an attack on the Confederate left, looking to score a knockout blow. But as his men moved into position, Confederate Colonel Tom Green, who was in command on the ground, ordered another counterassault that changed the course of the battle. Now, quoting uh, David Westfall, writing in the New Mexico Historical Review, and this is the Battle of Valverde, quote, Colonel Canby ordered a charge to complete what appeared to be a federal victory when about a thousand Texans on foot climbed from an old channel of the Rio Grande where they had been taking refuge from the Yankee artillery. Armed with rifles, pistols, shotguns, and bowie knives, their determination reinforced by desperate thirst, they hurled themselves at the key Union battery. Canister and grape ripped gaps in their onrushing ranks, but the Texans pressed forward to the battery and overwhelmed it in a savage hand-to-hand struggle. Never, reported a Confederate officer, were double-barreled shotguns used with better effect. The gunners fought back bravely with pistols and ramming staffs, but most of them were killed. The Confederates now turned the captured guns on the supporting infantry, who, terror-stricken by the rebel yells and the slaughter of the gunners, fled into the Rio Grande. And here Westfall quotes a Confederate soldier who was on the scene. Uh, fled into the Rio Grande, quote, more like a herd of frightened Mustangs than like men, end quote. So after a relatively short but bloody engagement, the Confederates captured six cannons, which was most of the artillery uh, that the Federals had brought with them from Fort Craig. And having lost the guns and with his line broken, Camby was forced to order a withdrawal back to the protection of the fort. And now it was the Confederates who followed in pursuit. All things considered, Valverde was uh, a pretty casualty-heavy battle. Um, Out of a little over 3,000 Union soldiers who saw action, they lost about 230 killed and wounded, and the rebels lost about 190 with a slightly smaller number engaged. The uh, rebel losses also included a considerable number of lost horses, which meant some of the men would be on foot, inevitably slowing down their future progress. Now, Colonel Canby knew well that despite the tactical defeat, he wasn't in a bad position at Fort Craig. The Army of New Mexico had uh, packed light to cover ground quickly, and they didn't have anywhere near enough provisions for a long-term siege. And as Canby had confirmed at Valverde, the rebel firepower was insufficient 
to batter the fort into submission with artillery. General Sibley was aware of these things too, and after his surrender demand was refused, he opted against attacking the fort. Fort Craig was lightly manned, but it was a defensible fort, and there were enough Union soldiers to make a direct assault imprudent. So instead of laying siege to Fort Craig, Sibley opted to leave behind a detachment to keep an eye on the fort, making sure the Union garrison didn't move out to attack the Army of New Mexico's rear. As it continued its march north in the direction of Albuquerque, Santa Fe, and the next big target, Fort Union. In the New Mexico campaign's initial engagement at Valverde and the follow-up at Fort Craig, Sibley and his rebels had earned a tactical victory, driving the Federals from the field. But it was definitely a logistical setback for the rebels. Remember, for Sibley's plan to work, it wasn't enough to just defeat the Union defenders in the field. The rebels needed to capture the Union forts and gain access to the supplies stored there. The first Confederate stop-off after Valverde at Albuquerque was a bust. The town had held a small Union garrison, more importantly to the rebels, a good-sized store of supplies. But by the time Sibley's men arrived, the Union soldiers had already evacuated, taking the supplies with them. And it was pretty smart to spend that little extra time to move the provisions and equipment. When you think about it, strategically... If you're leaving an area and you know hostile actors will be visiting after you're gone, you probably don't want to leave much behind of military value that they could use against you later. So whichever officer who was in Albuquerque and decided to deprive the rebels of the town's stores was using his noodle. You can imagine a situation where, you know, military is withdrawing from an area and leaves behind resources like, I don't know, maybe like $100 billion dollars. Uh, knowing that they'll end up in the hands of an unfriendly group. Well, that might come back to haunt you. Fortunately, though, the U.S. Army squad in Albuquerque had the foresight not to do that. Again, it's worth emphasizing that, that Sibley's plan relies on securing food, water, and equipment from Union garrisons. And so far, the rebels had, had come up completely empty in that regard. As a result, the Confederates are already starting to run dangerously short on provisions necessitating a change in plan. Sibley decided to divide his army of New Mexico, with roughly half continuing on towards Santa Fe, uh, another town with potential Union stores, and the other half uh, staying in and around Albuquerque with Colonel Sibley, where they would focus on raiding the surrounding area for much-needed supplies. But food and supplies in the surrounding area were hard to come by. Now, part of the reason uh, for the scarcity was that with the decreased Union presence in the territory and with the uh, Union soldiers who, who were there uh, focusing on defending against the rebels, there was no meaningful military force dedicated to, to fighting off Indian raids. Um, the Apache and, and Navajo responded to the, to the opening with a substantial increase in the frequency of their raids. And during those raids, they helped themselves to whatever they could carry and drove off any livestock that they couldn't take with them. The result was that Sibley's men couldn't appropriate from New Mexico's residents what native raiders had themselves already appropriated. The frustrated, cold, and hungry Texans grew more aggressive in their treatment of the New Mexico locals, disobeying Sibley's unambiguous orders. 
In the process, more than a few uh, New Mexicans who maybe had Confederate sympathies or uh, had decided to stay neutral in the conflict, on the advice of Miguel Otero, the New Mexico politician that the Confederates had thought was on their side, uh, the New Mexicans grew resentful of the Confederate presence. To the extent they may have earlier uh, been inclined to assist the rebel invaders, the rude treatment they endured was a strong encouragement in the opposite direction. It took the Santa Fe team more than two weeks to reach the town, slowed by the loss of horses and the rough terrain. Upon their arrival on March 13th, they again discovered that the damn Yankees had removed all the military stores held in the town in anticipation of the rebel arrival. Uh, An interesting side note that's worth mentioning here is that about 100 wounded and injured Confederate soldiers were with the group in Santa Fe and stayed behind to recuperate. And they were in pretty rough shape with little food and with no blankets. A woman uh, in the town by the name of Louisa Hawkins Canby, wife of Union Commander Edward Canby, was staying in Santa Fe and feeling compassion for the haggard Confederate wounded, she took action, earning the nickname the Angel of Santa Fe. Now, quoting now from the History of American Women, quote, It was winter and snow was still falling in the region. The Confederates did not have enough blankets to keep their sick and wounded warm. Taking pity on her husband's enemies, Lou not only organized the officers' wives to nurse the wounded and freezing soldiers, she showed them where food and blankets had been hidden. She converted the spacious Canby home into a hospital where Confederate surgeons dressed wounds and performed amputations on shattered limbs without anesthesia. Lou herself served as nurse and hospital supervisor. When some citizens objected to aiding the enemy, Lou said, and here this is a quote within a quote, Whether friend or foe, the wounded must be cared for. They are the sons of some dear mother. End quote. The next Confederate target was Fort Union, another 90 miles away, and they still had the same obstacles slowing their movement as before. And the delay was about to cause another obstacle. As Sibley's men were marching through the desert, Union reinforcements from Colorado under Colonel John Slough were showing up at Fort Union. Upon his arrival, Colonel Slough became Fort Union's highest-ranking officer, and took command of the fort and its garrison. The Colorado volunteers that he brought with him were mostly miners from the Denver area, and for his part, Slough had been working as a lawyer before the war. So at first glance, uh, this group from Colorado seems like an unlikely crew to make a big difference in the campaign. But as it turns out, they had come to fight. Slough was not interested in waiting around for the rebels to show up at Fort Union. So soon after arriving, he dispatched a detachment towards Santa Fe with the objective of confronting Sibley's rebels and forcing them out of New Mexico. Um, Incidentally, California also produced a respectable number of volunteers, but geography kept them out of the action, uh, especially in the early part of the war. Most California volunteers had to sail all the way around South America to join the fighting. Another group of well over a thousand um, who were set on helping to fight off the Confederate invasion of New Mexico, they traveled mostly on foot 
David Westfall reports that, quote, although they arrived too late to do any fighting, some 1,400 California volunteers made an extraordinary march across the Colorado and Gila deserts with the intention of saving New Mexico for the Union, end quote. Now, you have to respect the commitment, but can you imagine how disappointing it must have been to travel all that way, arrive in New Mexico only to be told the rebels had already left? And what else can you do at that point but walk all the way home? Uh, Then you get back to California, however many months later, or maybe the next year, and everybody wants to know how to go in New Mexico, and you have to say, uh, we showed up too late. We missed the party. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The men Colonel Sloud dispatched from Fort Union made first contact with the rebels near Santa Fe on March 26th. A group of about 250 Texans under Major Charles Pyron were camped at a location called Johnson's Ranch, about 25 miles east of Santa Fe. More importantly, the rebels were positioned to control Apache Canyon, an entry point into Glorieta Pass which was a gap through the Sangre de Cristo Mountains along the Santa Fe Trail. Glorieta Pass is a mountain pass that runs in the neighborhood of seven miles. It gets as wide as a quarter mile, but the entrance points on either side, including uh, Apache Canyon, are narrower. The Union force that found the rebels consisted of around 400 men under Major John Chivington who had come through the gap from the opposite side and came into contact with the rebels in the early afternoon as the Yankees reached the end of the gap. First contact came when Union scouts, in advance of the Federal force that was making its way through the canyon, ran into Confederate scouts. The rebel scouts had been at ease, completely unaware of the proximity of the Federals, and they were easily captured. Chivington, now hoping to catch the larger rebel force off guard, ordered his men to pick up the pace. Upon finding the rebels, Chivington ordered a direct assault right off the bat that was repulsed by the Confederate mountain howitzers. The Federals fell back further into the gap, and Chivington repositioned them with men on both sides, the idea being that if the Confederates advanced into the gap in pursuit, they'd be taking fire from both sides. As it turns out, that's exactly what happened. And so the rebel counterattack was also forced to fall back. Major Pyron, the Confederate commander, set up a defensive position in a spot where Apache Canyon narrowed. But this time, Chivington's men were able to get on the rebel flank, which required navigating a steep climb through a rocky wooded area. The outflanked rebels were forced to retreat and withdraw, But nightfall prevented a further Union attack, and Chivington also pulled his men back. This small afternoon engagement is now known as the Battle of Apache Canyon. The Union side got the better of the fighting, dishing out more casualties than they sustained, and Union cavalry captured a Confederate rear guard during the rebel withdrawal. 
Every man counted because the opposing forces were relatively small, and Sibley, unlike uh, the Yankees, didn't have any source of reinforcements. In response to the engagement at Apache Canyon, which occurred on March 26th, the opposing sides spent the next day concentrating their strength in anticipation of a larger clash. The battle that proved to be the pivotal moment in the New Mexico campaign, the Battle of Glorieta Pass, also called Pigeon's Ranch, came the following day on March 28, 1862. By the 28th, Lieutenant Colonel William Scurry was in command on the scene for the rebels. Scurry had identified and positioned his men within a covered area in the canyon, a strong, easily defended position from which it would have been extremely difficult for the Yankees to dislodge the rebels. But when no Union advance had come on the 27th, Scurry decided to set out in pursuit of the Yankees the following morning. Colonel Slough had also arrived with reinforcements on the 27th and took personal command on the Union side. The evening of the 27th, Slough also planned an attack for the next morning. The Battle of Glorietta Pass grew out of the skirmishing that started at Pigeon's Ranch. The battle occurred within an area of about two miles along the Santa Fe Trail. For the details of how the battle proceeded, we're relying mostly on David Westfall's writing in the New Mexico Historical Review. The two sides drew within to a quarter mile of each other by about 10 a.m. and started exchanging artillery fire. Eight federal guns opposed only three on the rebel side. Slough launched a Union attack at around 11 o'clock, highlighted by a company of Coloradans' attempt to get to the Confederate left flank by covertly moving through an extended ditch. They were spotted, though, and opposing rebel soldiers forced their way into the ditch to evict the Coloradans. After some vicious, close-range fighting, the Coloradans had to abandon the plan. With the initial Union attack stopped, Colonel Scurry ordered a rebel counterattack which pushed the Yankees back to the structures at the center of the ranch, where they formed a line around a ledge behind a few buildings. The two sides exchanged sniper fire for an hour or so, before Scurry ordered another assault with the goal of capturing Yankee artillery. The rebels advanced through a wooded area to make themselves more difficult targets, and the Federal artillery didn't open up until the attackers were within about 50 yards. The close-range cannon fire forced a halt to the advance, and a second attempt discovered the Yankees had again pulled back and repositioned. As the afternoon closed, a final Confederate assault succeeded in reaching the Union guns, only to be frustrated by volunteer Colorado infantry that rushed into the fighting to protect the artillery, occupying the attackers and allowing the artillery pieces to be removed to safety. With his canyon secured, Colonel Slough ordered his men to again withdraw, marking the end of a long day of hard fighting. Scurry recognized that his men were already overtaxed, and so he opted against further pursuit. Now in sole possession of Pigeon's Ranch, Scurry declared victory and directed his men to make camp, and to rest in preparation for the upcoming March on Fort Union. But as the victorious Confederates made plans for capturing Fort Union, they soon ran into a big problem. The relatively small group of Colorado volunteers led by Major John Chivington and guided by New Mexico native Manuel Chavez had been ordered by Colonel Slough 
during the morning hours of March 28th, as the engagement at Glorietta Pass began, to covertly set out and position for an attack on the Confederate rear. To do so, they had to ascend up Glorietta Mesa, leaving the pass for the mountainous surrounding area, travel around the Mesa, and then circle around the rebels. Chavez was familiar with the area, and he was confident that, although the planned route would require some tough climbing, the path would be manageable. Chivington and his men had marched and climbed for hours, but they weren't able to get into position for an attack on the rebel rear. However, what they did accomplish was much more momentous strategically. Chivington and Chavez located the relatively undefended rebel camp at Johnson's Ranch. The Coloradans had to descend down the steep edge of the mesa to get to the camp, but after making the climb, they were in position for a surprise assault on the Confederate supply wagons. David Westfall has a paragraph that does a great job of summing up the Coloradans' handiwork. Quote, While the Texans had been winning the battle, they had been losing the campaign. They had left their supply train at Johnson's Ranch. Chivington's command had descended from the mountains, easily overcome the small guard of Cook's wagoners and the sick, and burned all 64 wagons. The only northern casualty had been a man wounded when an ammunition wagon exploded. This foray, as one Coloradan wrote, quote, pierced the Confederates to their vitals and drew from thence the lifeblood, end quote. And here's still quoting Westfall. Most of the Confederate food, clothing, medical supplies, and ammunition was destroyed, and they found themselves destitute, a thousand miles from their home base, in hostile territory which had been stripped bare by Indians, end quote. Chivington and his men took the same difficult route in reverse to rejoin Colonel Slough and the rest of the Federals. They climbed and marched through the dark and didn't arrive till after midnight, at which point Chivington could report that, essentially unopposed, the Coloradans had destroyed effectively all of the Confederate supplies and wagons and killed or scattered the horses and mules. The next day, with a ceasefire in place to attend to the wounded and bury the dead, the rebels had no choice but to borrow shovels from the Yankees to bury the Confederate men killed at Glorietta Pass. So after believing himself to have prevailed on the battlefield, Confederate Lieutenant Colonel Scurry returned to camp with his victorious men only to discover that Chivington's Coloradans had put the rebels in a precarious position. You can maybe get away with living off the land when your army is marching through Georgia or South Carolina, populated areas with productive farms to commandeer food and supplies from, but that wasn't going to work in 1862 New Mexico. Rather than move for Fort Union, Scurry led his men back to Santa Fe to reunite with General Sibley and a portion of the Army of New Mexico who had remained with him. In Santa Fe, General Sibley and the other Confederate officers reached the painful but obvious conclusion that continuation of the New Mexico campaign was no longer possible. Sibley gave the order to commence the long, arduous march back to Texas, well aware that more than a couple of the rebels would not make it back. As the bedraggled, defeated Confederates approached Albuquerque, 
They found Edward Canby, the Union officer in command of Fort Craig and who was now a brigadier general, waiting for them. When Colonel Canby had learned of what Chivington's Coloradans had accomplished, he immediately recognized that Sibley's small army was in big trouble. Canby made plans to unite with the Federals from Fort Union and destroy what remained of the Army of New Mexico. Ultimately, though, Canby directed his men to closely shadow Sibley's withdrawal, pressuring but not engaging the rebels. There was no need for another battle, so Canby let the harsh desert landscape do the heavy lifting. Incidentally, when Canby had left Fort Craig to march north in pursuit of the rebel army, a march he had uh, begun before learning the results of Glorietta Pass, uh, Canby left the fort in the hands of Colonel Christopher Carson, better known as Kit Carson, in command of New Mexico Volunteers. Carson was a Kentucky-born frontiersman and fur trapper who became nationally famous for serving as John C. Fremont's guide on surveying expeditions through the Rocky Mountains and into Oregon and California, one of which resulted in the first official mapping of the Oregon Trail. Fremont's reports were republished in newspapers throughout the country and made the buckskin-wearing Kit Carson a popular hero and symbol of the American frontier. Carson's subsequent depiction within fictional dime novels set on the western frontier turned him into a near-mythical figure, the mountain man archetype, uh, at least the American version of it, is in no small part based on Kit Carson, and Nevada's uh, capital city, Carson City, is named after Kit Carson. Uh, Returning now to the aftermath of Glorietta Pass, it's been a long time since I watched um, the movie uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, but my understanding is that there's a reference in the movie to General Sibley um, and scenes that depict a disheveled, wary Confederate army in retreat. This is the part of the New Mexico campaign that the good, the bad, and the ugly is referencing. General Canby chose not to attack Sibley's retreating Confederates, but they might have been better off if the Yankees had taken them all prisoner. The rebels had almost no supplies for their 12-day, 100-mile march through the Hornada del Muerte Desert. And by the way, Hornada del Muerte means basically harsh journey of death, or travel day of death. So, you know, not a particularly hospitable place. Jeffrey Prushankin, the U.S. Army historian that we cited earlier, succinctly describes the rebel retreat like this, quote, The Confederates, lacking supplies, endured a punishing retreat, first to El Paso and then on to San Antonio, Texas. Over the course of the punishing retreat, Sibley's army fell apart, with abandoned equipment and exhausted men scattered all along the path back to El Paso. Sibley and what was left of the consolidated army made it all the way back to El Paso, then to San Antonio, showing up in the beginning of May. Stragglers stumbled into town over the next few weeks. About 1,700 rebels who had not died or been captured during the New Mexico campaign arrived in El Paso. That means that nearly half of the men who originally set out on the campaign didn't make it back from New Mexico. The soldiers who did make it back had developed, according to General Sibley, quote, a dogged, 
irreconcilable detestation of the country and the people of New Mexico. End quote. In other words, they were not interested in taking another shot at it. Within two months, all rebel soldiers who had been in New Mexico were no longer there, for good, as it turns out. The New Mexico campaign had been an ambitious endeavor, and it started out with some promise, but it ultimately turned into a debacle, an absolute disaster. It was an utter failure that effectively marked the end of Confederate interest in Union Far Western territories. The idea of taking control of resources and ports in California, um, as wonderful as it might sound in theory, had been a pipe dream. Sibley's failed New Mexico campaign was the last significant fighting in the New Mexico Territory and the Far West as a whole. But it wasn't the end of the fighting in the Trans-Mississippi. The Yankees still had to go through a disastrous Trans-Mississippi campaign all their own. That campaign came almost exactly two years after the New Mexico campaign. And like the New Mexico campaign, it was doomed to failure by inadequate planning, poor execution, and some bad luck. The Union Army's version of a trans-Mississippi disaster will be the subject of the next edition of Portraits of Blue and Gray, as we look to Louisiana, Arkansas, and the Red River Campaign. As always, thanks for listening. And for the folks who are still subscribed, thanks for your patience, support, and all the encouraging emails. And I hope that Portraits of Blue and Gray will be back again real soon. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.